None of us can isolate ourselves and our countries and our communities from what's going on. We can't. It's a global thing that affects all of us, you see. And I think, personally, that it's the threat of extinction that's going to be the tipping point in favor of a basic income. Let's imagine there's a future where every morning you wake up, have a cup of coffee and then start doing the thing you like the most. Work is not a thing that you have but want to do and actually enjoy. The Monday morning vibes are gone for good. And all this without to worry if you can pay the rent at the end of the month. Thanks to universal basic income, this future scenario is not an utopia anymore. You probably already ask yourself, what's the noise in the background? Well, this is probably a world's first, at least it's a Dezentrum's first. With me on this first ever podcast recording on a train is Guy Standing. <laughs> yes, and it's a beautiful day in Switzerland. We're going through the lovely countryside and it's very appropriate to be thinking of a good future. Uh, in what is a very dark time politically in the world, as we all know. Guy, tell me a little about yourself. Who are you? Um, I'm an economist and I've been promoting a basic income for over 30 years, ever since I completed my PhD in, in Cambridge. And we founded, in 1986, we founded Bien, which in those days was basic income European network uh, with young philosophers, economists, sociologists and activists, some religious people as well. And we've just had our 19th international congress and this year it was held in Hyderabad in India. And people from over 45 countries came to that, that congress and it was a wonderful exhibition of thinking, different ages, different qualifications, different backgrounds, as many women as men, uh, all ages. And it was very encouraging because suddenly in the last few years, the idea of having a basic income as a right of every citizen in their countries uh, has become mainstream. People have looked at the standard objections that have been made and I've addressed them in my own book on basic income and we've been carrying out pilots, uh, experiments around the world where we provide thousands of people with a modest basic income and then compared what happens to them with what happens to similar people in different communities who are not receiving the basic income. And it's, it's very rare that somebody has an opportunity to put into practice what they believe. And I can count myself very fortunate in, in that respect. And in every place where we've done pilots, what's happened is that people's nutrition starts to improve. Their health and their health care improve. Their status of women improves. 
the status and position of people with disabilities improves. And contrary to the prejudices of critics, people actually do more work, not less. It's one of those fictions, prejudices, that if you gave everybody just a basic minimum amount, they would become lazy. That is an insult to the human condition. It's an insult to all of us because from any starting point, you want to improve the lives of those you love. You want to improve your life by developing your talents. And you actually feel that if society is treating you with respect, you have a moral duty to respond in kind. That's the normal human condition. Of course, there'll be a tiny minority who will behave differently, but there are ways of dealing with that. We must, we must actually take a, a more positive view of human nature. And going through the countryside as we are now, I realize, of course, that we should trust people. And people who are trusted build their country they build their society, and they relate to each other differently. Experiments with having, as I say, modest basic income, we're not talking about a large amount, we're talking about just enough to make you feel that in extremis, you'll be able to pay your rent or you'll pay your food and be able to survive if something bad happens to you and then you build your life with other income there's nothing to stop you going out and earning an income according to your talents and, and abilities but it gives people a basic security now I believe that a basic income is a matter of ethical justification I don't believe it's a matter of instrumental uh, need or something like that, although it does have those instrumental advantages, like reducing inequality, uh, like uh, preparing people for the robots or whatever. We'll come to that. But I think that it's, it's an ethical matter. The wealth and income of everybody in any society is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many generations who've come before us than anything we do ourselves. If you think otherwise, you're either a fool or dishonest or both. Because we know that previous generations have created this beautiful landscape the the infrastructure that we inherit. And if you believe that, then you can say, well, look, if we accept private inheritance of wealth, of property and whatever, for which you've not done any work whatsoever, none, none. If you accept that, 
then why don't we also accept the idea of social wealth and a social dividend on the past wealth that should be equal for everybody? And a higher amount for people with disabilities who have extra costs of living to make it an equal amount because they've got higher costs and lower probability of earning a decent income. So for me, it's fundamentally an ethical matter. And if you're religious, and if you're a Christian, for example, or one of the other faiths, you can justify it on the grounds that God or Allah has given you unequal talents. Some people have more talents than other people out of pure luck, right? And in a sense, a basic income for a religious person should be seen as equalizing, compensating the people with less talent than others. Now, I'm not a religious person, but I think that's a respectable position for anybody who is religious. The second ethical justification for a basic income, as I've argued in my book, is that it would enhance freedom. It would enhance three types of freedom. It would enhance what we sometimes call libertarian freedom, the freedom to say no. Very important, particularly if you're a woman, to be able to say no to an oppressive relationship no to an exploitative employer or an exploitative person with whom you're dealing with or a bureaucrat who is being oppressive. It doesn't give you total freedom in that regard, but it enhances, it improves your position. We've found in our pilots that that is something that people come to value greatly. The second type of freedom is what we call liberal freedom, which is the freedom to be moral. And the freedom to be moral means that I do something because I think it is right. Now, we may actually be wrong. We may accept that what I think is right um, may, in your view, not be quite right. But that's not the point. The point is to be moral, is to do things because you think they're right. And if you're chronically insecure or impoverished, you can't do that. You can't take moral decisions. You have to do what people tell you or, or, or what you just need to do out of desperation. And to survive, right? Exactly. Yeah. Whereas to be moral is... Now, you can only be moral if you have this, this sense of security. And the third freedom is sometimes called Republican freedom. I go into society as an equal, an equal of status. I can look people in the eyes as an equal, and I am not subject to their will over me, their unaccountable will over me. And that, of course, is also a very important type of freedom. And that, again, uh, is certainly 
something that most women can understand in the sense that often it is a husband saying what they can and they cannot do. And it's not real freedom if you have to consult somebody before you can do it. It's only freedom if I can do it regardless of what you want me to do, okay? It goes with moral freedom, but it, it, it's different, okay? Now, that's the second justification. And all politicians and academics talk about freedom, that they believe in freedom. Well, you can't have freedom unless you've got basic security. And that is the third ethical justification. We all need basic security. It's not the same thing as total security. Total security leads to carelessness. It leads to a loss of care. All right, but uh, Sorry, to, uh, yeah, oh, I need to show show my show ticket. My yeah, Very good. Yeah. <laughs> that we'll stop for a second. Yep. Thank you. So, basic security is a human need. We all need basic security, except some crazies who thrive on total irresponsibility, but the ordinary human being, man, woman and child, needs basic security. And basic security is a public good. I'm an economist and we call it a public good. And a public good is something that if you have it, it doesn't deprive me of having it. But it's a superior public good. Because if all of us in this train carriage have basic security, the value of that basic security improves for everybody. Because basic security induces better behavior. It induces a sense of altruism, a tolerance of the other, the stranger, and, and a sense that we all owe it to each other to be better towards each other and towards the community. So for me, it's, it's, it's very much a, a superior public good and something we all need. So these three ethical justifications are why I believe that a basic income should be the anchor of a new income distribution system. Just on in parenthesis, I, I participated uh, in the Swiss referendum on basic income. And I spoke in Zurich, I spoke in Geneva, and to very big meetings. And we interacted with a lot of people. And I'm very glad that in our canton, we, we, did, very, we, we, did, we did very well. But somebody in the middle of that campaign don't forget, we had no money, we had no organization, the banks were against us, the political parties were not in favor. But the movement was really energizing. And then one day, one of the people in the general leadership, if you like, but not with the permission of anybody else, made the stupid, in my view, stupid statement that the amount 
Should be 2,500 Swiss francs per month. Okay. I think that was a huge mistake. I said so at the time. And from then on in the campaign, the media and the critics said the movement was proposing 2,500, which was not true. If you read the referendum, you will see that it said the amount would be determined by parliament, by a different process. The point was to commit to a future Switzerland where moving towards a decent basic income according to the funding abilities and so on would be part of the social project. And I believe then that this is, this is what consistent with the culture of Switzerland just as it's uh, consistent with the culture of Britain where I come from. And for me, that was a missed opportunity. But nevertheless, I think it was a start of a conversation. There was an opinion poll carried out immediately after the referendum where asking people, do you think that's the end of the subject or the beginning of a conversation? And I remember something like 68% of people across Switzerland said, no, this is the beginning of the conversation. And I think that's right. As we all know, the, the, the tradition of referenda in Switzerland, most of the great initiatives have been defeated first time round. That's been the tradition, but it starts people thinking differently. And when it comes around again, then often they're successful and I believe that is what will happen in Switzerland yeah so so which forces do you think will shape our future I have written a book called the corruption of capitalism and I've written a new book which came out last week called the plunder of the commons I want to come back to that later yes. yeah and for me we are in a crisis point and it's difficult to see that so clearly in Switzerland because in a sense Switzerland is a bit of an island from uh, all countries around but nevertheless the similar things are happening in in Switzerland as everywhere else right we're in the crisis point of what I call the global transformation the painful construction of a globalized economy and this is the, the crisis comes because we've had a period of what economists call neoliberalism, in which uh, a very Chicago-oriented type of economics has dominated the global economy. A pursuit of um, free markets, that has actually led to the opposite, where intellectual property rights have been strengthened so that a tiny minority of plutocrats and plutocratic corporations, uh, extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, 
have been sucking out more and more of the income. And much of that comes from finance, uh, patents, copyright, a lot of things that uh, make the idea of a free market actually ridiculous. We don't have a free market. Anyone who thinks otherwise should go and study more economics or something, because we don't. <laughs> we don't, right? And it's created a set of circumstances, and this leads to the important aspect of the technological revolution that we're experiencing at the same time. The technological revolution has made it far easier for corporations and capital to relocate wherever costs are lowest. And this has tended to lead to a number of related things. The nature of our labor markets are changing dramatically fast. More and more labor in the future will be done online, outside workplaces, outside labor time, etc. And we'll have a totally different experience in front of us. But it's, but it's also this technological revolution has strengthened the position of finance and capital over labor, over people who do labor. And consequently, all over the world, all over the world, the share of income going to capital and capitalists has been going up. The share going to people who are doing labor has been going down. And we have this set of circumstances where inequality has been growing dramatically everywhere. Ironically, more in China than, than anywhere else. Uh, so it's not something that's just hitting OECD countries uh, like the United States or Japan or Britain. It's, it's a global thing, right? And the inequality is compounded, made worse, because inequality of wealth is greater than inequality of income. And the ratio of wealth to earned income has increased dramatically in many countries. So we have a worsening inequality, and it's been made worse by what I describe in the Plunder of the Commons book, because the Commons was, has been an equalizing force but if you take it away and privatize it, you, you increase the inequalities. So we, we, we have a situation where our income distribution system is breaking down. And wages, real wages, will not rise by much in the rich countries in the foreseeable future in those circumstances, particularly because China, India, other big developing countries how can get the technology, they can get the capital, they can ma manufacture anything just as well as an, any European country, for example, and therefore their wages are rising and we want them to rise, they still continue to drag down Swiss, British, American wages. That matters now because we haven't confronted the situation that our income distribution system is breaking down, right? And we have to realize that, okay, that was the system for the last century. 
doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the system for this century, right? In fact, the system that that we had in the last 50 years of the second of the 20th century was unique in history. It had never existed before. And if you'd interviewed somebody in the 18th century and you would have said that wages and capital, and they, they would have said, what are you talking about? You know, so, so it's, it's not as if uh, that's the, the natural system. It isn't. So we should get out of the trap of thinking that that is permanent. It's not. If we thought out of the box and said, okay, the system is changing. The system is broken down. We need to build a new one. We need to build a new one. Fair enough. Then we can say, okay, well, what should the new one look like? And you then can say, okay, we should be recycling the rent that is going to the very wealthy in some way, recycling it to give everybody a basic income as a right because production is generating that wealth, we need a better way of sharing it. Then people can look at the question of basic income more objectively, I believe. And I think that that is what we have to realize in in the next few years before the situation gets much worse. Now, because of the books I've written on the precariat, the growth of the precariat as a class. I get invited all over the world to talk about uh, the precariat and these problems. And I must have given over 500 uh, speeches in 40 countries. Now that's very strange for someone like me. But I find that similar reactions coming forward in all of those countries richer or poorer and we've got to do something quickly because we are in a very dangerous point now if you think about the last transformation the last time inequalities were very very extreme in the 1920s and 1930s it was called the gilded age well we're living in the second gilded age And the first Gilded Age generated huge inequalities, huge insecurities, the Great Depression, and the growth of fascism, the growth of Bolshevism, the growth of extremist politics, of hatred, of intolerance. Now, we are in that point now. In my book on the precariat, the first book, on page one, page one, which was written in 2011, I said, unless we understand the precariat and respond by by dealing with the problems, um, we're going to see a political monster. And you will not be surprised that in November 2016, I received a lot of emails from people around the world saying your monster has arrived. And Donald Trump is is a monster and he's leading the world into a lack of tolerance, uh, an abandonment of the norms 
the norms of decency, the norms of treating people with respect, uh, treating strangers as you would wish to be treated yourself. All of these norms are being jettisoned, being thrown out. And he's not alone, of course. Victor Orban, we have Boris Johnson, we have Salvini in Italy, we have a lot of others who would like to take over. And it's not just in rich countries, we see it in the Philippines. And we're seeing a lot of these characters coming into to power and they're playing on people's insecurity. They're playing on the precariat's fears. Now that could be our future. And we don't want that, of course not. But unless we, we realize that we've got to do something fairly fundamental about that, then we're going to drift into that phase. But there's one big, big issue that we haven't discussed yet, but which is fundamentally different and much, much worse than back in the last crisis point. And that, of course, is the ecological crisis. I am a total supporter of the Extinction Rebellion. I think we all should be. Because what we're facing is an ecological threat the species, to our idea of nature, to our idea of ourselves. And I think we need to go back to Alexander von Humboldt, who was uh, the, the predecessor of Charles Darwin. In the early part of the 19th century, Alexander von Humboldt was the most famous person in the world. And he, in fact, uh, Napoleon was jealous of him uh, because <laughs> he was more famous than Napoleon. And, and when he died, when von Humboldt died in 1869, all around the world, thousands of people came out in the streets. And he was that famous. And yet today, hardly anybody knows about him, you see. But the essence of Humboldt's contribution to the thinking of today and the future was that, and Darwin dedicated his book to von Humboldt, he saw the connectedness of all parts of nature, including the human being. If you break the circle of nature in which we are part of, if you break it and you destroy part of it, you risk destroying the whole of it, okay? And he, he developed that in many beautiful ways. And I think we are at this point uh, endangering ourselves by endangering all parts of nature. And, and I think we need to be dramatically confronting this issue, not uh, like the politicians have been uh, little bits of change, a little bit of etc. We need to be really dramatic. I loved the the fact that Switzerland has actually led the way with certain things, like banning of big lorry, uh, big lorries, and things like that. That uh, and 
We know, uh, look at this beautiful nature we're going through right now. We know how beautiful Switzerland is. And we want the whole world to be like that. Because none of us can isolate ourselves and our countries and our communities from what's going on. We can't. It's a global thing that affects all of us, you see. And I think, personally, that it's the threat of extinction that's going to be the tipping point in favor of a basic income. And I'll say why. The need today to deal with the pollution, the greenhouse gas emissions, the many other particles in the air, the destruction of our water, our land, our, our health, requires a dramatic change in our taxation system. All right, so we're, we're back in plunder of the commons, right? We are, in a sense. Yeah. You've yeah. got it. Yeah. You've got it. Because that's the final chapter of the book. And the plunder of the commons is about saying, okay, we are losing our commons. Not just our natural commons, but our social commons, our civil commons. And the commons belong to everybody. Okay? The commons belong to everybody equally. And the only way to compensate the commoners, that's you and me and everybody else listening, the commoners is to do so equally. I can't say you deserve more than somebody else. That's not right. And we deserve to compensate. And that ties in with the ecological uh, crisis because we need higher carbon taxes to discourage the pollution. To we need, we need to think of levies or taxes on people who are making big money out of taking our commons. To it discourage them from taking them or making advantage from them. And we need, therefore, to think of higher taxes. But as President Macron found out in, in France, if you just raise duty on fuel or fossil fuel, fuel that is regressive. It, it increases inequality because it, it's the same amount for a poor person as it is for a rich person. Okay, And you end up with something similar to the gilet jaune and entirely predictable, okay, it should have been entirely predictable for Macron. And I think it was predictable. So what we need is to say, we need those taxes, but we have to assure the citizens, every citizen, that the money raised is going to be recycled to everybody as a dividend on, the, on a commons fund that we build up. Of course, another two words for basic income because that's what you're doing and for me that is the I'm going to be talking later today uh, saying that this for me is the tipping point where we should win the argument for a basic income I've just given some talks uh, on this and people who are students and in their 20s or, or 30s or whatever they 
can understand this better than anybody because of the urgency uh, of what we're facing. So for me, that the the whole thing ties into uh, a futuristic but realistic futuristic uh, agenda. There are other aspects which I've discussed in the books, but but this main narrative is why I think we will win. And then we can start thinking about what other things are needed as well. Of course, you know, the famous statement I sometimes use, which is you can't win a game of golf with only one club, right? And basic income is, is a club. Uh, you need other things at the same time. But, but for me, it's an imperative now. It's not something that would be nice and allow people to have this, this, that, and the other advantage, which all of those things matter, but it's an imperative now. I'd like to know, would you have done something different in your life if you've had a basic income at your disposal when you were young? Anybody who's had a period of insecurity, and I'm talking about serious insecurity, maybe for health reasons, maybe for family reasons, maybe for job reasons or breakup of relationships or whatever it might be. Anybody who's had a prolonged period of insecurity goes through life with scars. That it lingers. It affects people's confidence going forward. It probably affects their personality. And I think a basic income would have provided for less insecurity. I was born in a very poor family, and I remember as a teenager, my mother and uh, my mother and father were uh, separated. My mother being very angry when I said I wanted to go to university. I mean, in those days, it was not something that a working-class boy did, right? And she wouldn't speak to me for months. Uh, when I decided I was going to go to university. Um, now, would I have done things differently? I don't think so in the main. I've been fortunate in that respect. But I would. I would have taken, I think, more risks. I worked in the United Nations for many years in, a, in the bureaucracy of the United Nations. And I should have left earlier, okay? I should have left earlier. And when I did leave and went off and was writing and giving lectures and so on, um, I realized that actually I should have done it 20 years before. And, and it's, it means that I've been working very, very hard ever since because once I was free, of the job and all the pressures of supporting a family etc etc I actually worked harder and worked more productively right and I don't think having I mean by then I had basic security okay I had basic security but I worked harder you see and and it I think that was another mistake in the referendum in Switzerland It's another mistake to put so much emphasis on the, the idea that uh, you, what would you do with yourself if you 
didn't have to, to work, right? And I think that was a, a, a strategic and tactical mistake. Because in actual fact, we, we need to reconceptualize what we mean by work, all right? I mean, the, the, the tragedy is that every age throughout history has had its stupidity about what is work and what is not work. It's crazy, okay? And in our age, and for the last hundred years, only labor that is being paid by a boss or being an entrepreneur, that only that sort of work has counted as work. Whereas a lot of the other forms of work, care, community work, being an artist, being somebody volunteering in the community, none of that counts as work, okay? And there's a famous uh, example that illustrates that, which you don't have to be an economist to, uh, to understand it, it's obvious. If I hire a woman as a housekeeper, or a cook in my house. If I hire her, then national income goes up, employment goes up, unemployment goes down, economic growth goes up, and the politicians all nod with approval, uh, very exactly. If I marry her, and she continues to do exactly the same activities, national income goes down, employment goes down, economic growth goes down, unemployment rate goes up, and the politicians get worried, which is ridiculous. This is a totally sexist, ridiculous uh, vision of reality. And we need to, to escape that. Our labor statistics are, should be radically changed so that all forms of work are, are counted. And again, the great thing we've seen with people who have basic income and basic security is, not surprisingly, they turn to doing more of those forms of work that they want to do and they need to do, like caring for your mother or caring for your children. Or Every man goes through life who's had, a, had children wishing they'd spend more time caring for their children, I assure you. Most of us go through life wishing we'd spent more time caring for our mothers or our fathers, or other relatives. We go through life thinking, why did I spend so much time in the office or in the factory or whatever it might be? Why not more time? Why? I wish I had. Now, that's the normal human reaction. All right. And a basic income would allow us to be more flexible, to more oriented to doing forms of work. Not, that's not labor. But equally important, equally important, as I've emphasized in the book, we need that basic security in order to devote more time to real leisure. The ancient Greeks made a distinction between work and labor and between leisure and recreation, right? We need recreation. We need to play football, watch football, all of that stuff, whatever is your particular uh, interest and love, etc. Great, we need that. 
but we also need leisure in the sense of participating as citizens in our community, politically educating ourselves. I'll stop while the announcement is, is, is over, in case they throw me off the train. <laughs> but that shows us we have approximately three to four minutes left. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. It's made the journey quick. It's super quick, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. But the tragedy of Brexit, for example, in Britain, is there was a complicated question put to referendum, which 90% of the population did not know the economics. Uh, it's no criticism. It's no, it's, they didn't know the economics of it because they're not educated in economics, right? And I think they made terrible judgment. But the point is that most people didn't know the facts. Now, we can only make good political decisions if we have more time to be using for proper leisure. And I think that is a key point going forward. Unless people have an opportunity to educate themselves and be educated about political matters, ethical matters, culture, your history, we will continue to see the populists rising up with their stupidities and slogans and manipulating people. Surveillance will get stronger. So to me the last point as we come into the station is that we need we need a system that encourages more leisure rather than passive recreation and we need a system that encourages more work rather than labor. And I think that particular vision is an important one for going to a good society.